Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. The Olympics tennis is over. The Olympics isn't, though. Catherine Whitaker is is just back from her latest Eurosport shift, albeit she's been uh, up all night. <laughs> How was it, Catherine? The weird Olympics continues in a different <laughs> guise. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, yeah, it, it's watching it's watching sport and watching the Olympics. So obviously, it's brilliant. But uh, eating a katsu curry at four a.m. is a is a very weird thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a bit like when you do one of those uh, 24-hour flights to Australia. And I, I basically just eat everything I'm offered on the plane, no matter the time. Mm. <laughs> every meal, uh, every bit of food I ate had a egg on a plane uh, feel to it. <laughs> Never say yes to egg on a plane. Oh, marvellous. So it's, it's eight in the morning, UK time. Catherine has been up for the last how many hours? Ten? Something like that. Oh, uh, oh, longer than that, unfortunately, because I can't believe I'm going to say this. I'm going to shatter. To, I mean, I've I've so long um, trumped about uh, sleeping being the thing I do best in life. Turns out I don't do that as well as I thought I did. I really crumbled under the pressure yesterday and only achieved... What I wanted to do was have a full night's sleep during the day, and actually, I achieved a two point five hour nap, um, which was incredibly disappointing. Mm. Mm. She looks remarkably perky, doesn't she, uh, Matt? Given the circumstances, that's <laughs> what a katsu curry can do for you. <laughs> yes, that midday nap went against all that you think to be true about napping. It should be a luxury rather than yeah, a necessity. It was- absolutely the pressure that got to me it it didn't it didn't feel like sleeping during the day should it's all wrong everything's wrong anyway she's up in arms about it right well let's talk about uh, the remaining medals that have been decided at the olympics uh, yesterday as we as we come to you um we'll we'll take them in chronological order from from the day itself and Things started with the women's doubles final, and it was won by Barbara Krichikova and Katerina Siniakova beating Belinda Bencic, the singles gold medalist, and uh, Victoria Golubic. Now, 
I I was not surprised by this result, not surprised by these winners generally, because they are just a spectacular doubles team, aren't they? I mean, I, I think what Krachikova is doing, making such a, a singles career for herself and being a contender for all the major titles and still persisting with doubles, taking pride in doubles and winning in doubles is 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 fantastic for the sport generally. But my word, I would hate to be their opponents. There was a moment where Siniakova knocked Golubic off her feet with the sheer force of her, of her ground strokes. I mean, she is a nasty doubles player, Matt. Mm, yes, absolutely. It's it's like a superpower for the already mm. best doubles team in the world for one of those players to elevate themselves into one of the best singles players and have experience winning Grand Slam title in singles now as well and yet still be just as dedicated to doubles and to that partnership as she was before. Um, it feels like what Krachikov is doing has sort of taken them to a new level and yet actually in this match... I actually thought Siniakova was the star. She was the one who, who who shone and who was sort of the most dangerous of the two of them. And they combine, I think, telepathically pretty much at this stage. They just have such an understanding. And I'm so impressed with, with both of them. I think, you know, that point about Krejcikova still committing to doubles is, is so true, isn't it? Because we will look back on this year and we will... We will remember her singles exploits, I think, more than anything, the way she's improved and become a real force at the top of the game. But she's won a mixed doubles in Australia with Rajiv Ram. She won singles and doubles at Roland Garros. And now she's won Olympic gold in doubles as well. She is She's doing something that no one has done for years in tennis, which is thrive at both of those disciplines she's making it possible and I think Siniakova as her partner is a big help in that as well they're just they're just such a good team and you know Bencic I would have loved the double gold but still a heck of an effort from her to to get to the doubles final as well as winning the singles Hmm. do do you think there's much chance or any chance I mean in your just just in your mind that Krachikova could wake up and suddenly not be able to do this as a combo and get and uh, you know at the moment she's make she makes all of this look so easy she she looks as though she handles it without any stress without any tiredness fatigue i i don't i'm amazed that that it's happening really and yet she makes uh, one of those things that mary carillo always says about roger federer makes it look as as though she, he walks incredibly lightly on earth and she she carries a bit of that about her now, and yet I know she used to suffer terribly with with her lack of self belief in singles. It, it's not something that that had occurred to me. I think there's more perhaps the risk that players in singles start to figure her out. Uh, you know, there is traditionally a, an an element of surprise and novelty with players kind of breaking through in a in a dramatic way. Which which can wear off in kind of second season syndrome, but I think she's so smart um, and such a canny player that I can imagine her sort of re readapting once the other players have adapted to her. So she did. I do rem- remember in the latter stages of that French Open, she she was knackered. It wasn't like she doesn't feel it. I didn't think, oh my god, how is this happening? It can't possibly continue. She's under some kind of spell. I thought she seemed 
very human um but just somehow somehow managing it and and pushing through um so yeah, it'll be it'd be interesting to see how she performs in you know the the latter stages of the season indian wells the wta finals which we don't know where they're going to be but she's she's going to be there um that will be interesting that will be very interesting but it's not it's not a worry that had really con- occurred to me about her no mm. I think what strikes me is in the interviews that I'd heard of her before she broke through in singles, she seemed to have an imposter syndrome about singles generally, and which she didn't have in doubles. And 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 well, that's gone now. I mean, look, she. I my sense is that she completely feels she belongs, and she's she still seems to be riding a wave of just isn't this great that I can do both, and uh, mm. and I think that that's energizing her. And actually, we should have known that Bengcic would go on to win the gold because she was the one who beat Krejcikova at the Olympics. And anyone who beats Krejcikova at the moment seems to go on to win the <laughs> tournament. If Krejcikova doesn't win it herself, that happened in Rome, it happened at Wimbledon, and it's happened again. It does seem to me like her doubles really complements her singles. It, it doesn't feel like she's struggling to keep up with both. It just feels like what she does at the moment is enter both events and... If she does happen to fall early in one, she's likely to win the title in the other one. It, it, they seem to work in tandem with one another at the moment. Yeah. Well, she's a, a gold medalist in the doubles alongside Katerina Siniakova. So well done to them. They were followed onto the main court in Tokyo by Alexander Zverev and Karen Hatchinov for the men's singles gold medal match. Won by Zverev 6-3-6-1 and that is exactly how one-sided it was and i would say i would say it's the best i've i've ever seen zverev play and he i think there have been moments in when he, i think he won the title in rome and when he won the atp finals where where he's he's played aggressive tennis and and taken over matches but rarely from the start in this one he actually played like i feel as though People have spent five, six years wondering why he doesn't play like this, just going after shots and dominating an opponent. And what he was doing with his backhand was unstoppable, really, for for anybody, for certainly a guy of, of Hatchinov's level, who I think had done really well to get to the final. I thought he would do way better than he did. Uh, but he just, he looked pretty ordinary against what he was facing. There was an incredible piece of camera work um, in the moment of victory or the moments immediately following victory uh, when Zverev is in the foreground celebrating and being overcome by emotion, arms aloft and then head in hands and just in the background, out of focus and slightly obscured by the net, you can see the hunched over figure of Karen Hatchinov at the chair, at the, at the umpire's chair with just sort of rackets cascading left right and center um yeah and it it kind of tells the story of of that match i think i mean zverev was brilliant and hatchinov didn't didn't show up for for the biggest match of his life yeah i think hatchinov was gutted with how he played just he'd been playing so well and to put in that performance was was really disappointing i i do think a lot of it as you said was was because of how well Zverev was playing. He looked like someone 
should look after they've just beaten the world number one and the guy who no one can beat. He looked like he'd taken so much confidence from that. And sometimes I think it can be a struggle to back up a win like that, you know, and, and to go again in the next round coming off that high. But he he seemed to just take confidence from that and he played exactly the way I think everyone thinks he should be playing in every match he plays, you know, not waiting for the ball to come to him, but going after it, stepping in, using that incredible backhand he's got. But actually, you know, he had no problems on serve either. His his forehand didn't break down at all. It, it was a weapon for him. It was a very, very complete performance and he thoroughly outplayed Hatchinov. And as you said, it was a scoreline which really reflected the match. That uh, second set that he won 6-1, he, he got 80% of his first serves in, which I, I think is a very telling statistic. And uh, if that carries on in in the months to come, he can be a real contender elsewhere. I still think I don't necessarily have that much belief that it will carry on because I've, I've seen those serving displays before. I also think if and when he wins a Grand Slam, it'll be because he is able to play great tennis not serving 80% first serves in. Hmm. It'll be that he can play a brilliant match serving 55% first yeah. serves in. Hmm. Which he did first set in in a way, I mean, and he still won that 6-3, but it was noticeable. But I agree with you. It's To me, it's always been if the serve is the arms rolling over and the 135 mile an hour serves are just coming out of it as if they're nothing, then that's when he's he's competitive. But often he'll still retreat in a rally if it comes back and and be dictated to. That just wasn't happening here. It's still best of three sets. It's still not a grand slam. And he's still not facing everybody he'll have to probably face in order to get over the line at one. But it's a step. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly still got, still got a lot of work to do at slams. You know, he, he's shown his hand at Grand Slams and we've had a lot of experiences of him at slams putting in some not particularly great performances. He's, he's actually improved his first week record in slams. He's getting He's getting to the latter stages now and he's just not really delivering in those in those biggest matches um i think there's an idea that we can get some strange results at the olympics and certainly historically that is that is true um but this this tournament to me and zverev ending up winning it feels more like what happens when only one of the big three is present at a big tournament it only takes one slightly strange thing to happen like we had at the US Open last year with Djokovic getting disqualified, like we had at the Olympics this year with Djokovic just suddenly losing his form so dramatically, and suddenly there's an opportunity there. It's it's the pack hunters thing, isn't it? It is, it is. Mm. They're much stronger when they're all together, and as soon as they're not, they become more vulnerable. And interestingly, Zverev has been there both times. You know, at the US Open, he got to the final, and here at the Olympics, he's won the title. So... It does make me think there's not been that many opportunities for people to win slams. And when there was an opportunity, he he did get to the final. So perhaps we are going to get more tournaments like this in the next few years. And, and he is sort of doing what he needs to do to at least give himself a chance to win them. It's just a question of whether he can improve that five-set record, I think, against 
the best players because he's never beaten a top 10 player at a slam, which is a really damning statistic for someone who's been in the top 10 as long as Ferev has. Also occurs to me that he he's the guy who lost out in that US Open final and the the different trajectories of their careers since then, Team and Zverev. Now, mm. obviously, injury pl- has played a part for Team, but it's we didn't see any drop-off in Zverev's form or mood or anything, really. Uh, no, I would, I would back Zverev at the US Open over Team, who might be entering it left-handed. Yeah, I, I can't see him playing. I just can't see how he's going to be fit, to be honest. Um, but anyway, we'll no. we'll see. I mean, he's, not unless he's... Taylor Fritz slips him his surgeon's <laughs> yeah. number. <laughs> Everybody's got there's a queue to Taylor <laughs> Fritz's door. He doesn't need it. He's learning how to hit a single-handed, into-out feet off the ground backhand with his left hand. <laughs> Just leave him to it. Imagine, imagine if you'd got either option. Oh, amazing. Oh. Um, <laughs> right. Well. Um, should add that uh, during that final, um, it, it came to light over here in the UK. Uh, we, we were unable to watch the American coverage of the match, um, but it, but subsequently it came to light that uh, during it, Mary Carrillo on commentary for NBC said that a second piece written by Ben Rothenberg about Zverev would be published ahead of the US Open. You may recall that he he wrote a piece, did Ben for Racket magazine late last year, entitled Olya's Story, in which Vera's former girlfriend, Olya Sharipova, made detailed allegations of domestic abuse, both physical and emotional, against Vera from their time together. Now, as Vera denied those allegations, he read a statement to that effect ahead of the ATP finals last year. Um, But in commentary, Mary said that she'd read the second piece that is due to come out before the US Open, and that the ATP were going to need to get a domestic abuse policy. Darren Cahill was sitting alongside her, and he said that the ATP had been poor and negligent for their lack of a domestic abuse policy to sit alongside the sports system for investigating drug and gambling breaches. So, I mean, there's a lot to to unpack there. There's a lot to to be aware of ahead of when this piece, this second piece from Ben, comes out ahead of the US Open. But as has been the case, really, ever since the initial piece came to light and was written and those allegations were made and, and subsequently denied, it it continues to make watching Alexander Zverev matches difficult, I, I think. And, and certainly something I can't forget about. I can't pretend that I haven't read those that piece. No, and I don't want to. I don't, uh, you know, we should all feel uncomfortable with it. Matt has spoken so brilliantly about that on this podcast, how few people there are that are just saying the simple words, domestic violence is wrong. You know, that's not hard. That <laughs> should be absolute route one. And we're so rarely hearing it because um, everybody would rather it went away and sounds like it's not going to go away and... Our discomfort at watching him play will go away. You know, I he is perfectly legitimately allowed to play tennis and he's doing so very, very well. I don't deny him that right and I don't, you know, it's not for me to do that. But 
I feel uncomfortable watching it. Um, yeah, and it's deeply unsatisfactory. Well, we will wait and see what comes out in that piece. And when it does, uh, we, will, we will discuss it here on the Tennis Podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking. And I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. The next match that came onto court was the mixed doubles gold medal match between Andre Rublev and Anastasia Pavlichenkova, and I, I find myself smiling just saying those words um, because they, they're just a comical duo, um, beating Elena Vesnina and Aslan Karatsev 13-11 in the match tiebreak. Um, we'll, we'll get to the, the after-match hijinks uh, for, in a minute, but, but first of all, the match itself. Matt, I think you watched uh, most of it. I saw some of it, but, but what was it like? It was a really great note to end the tennis at the Olympics on. There was a thrilling conclusion with Rublev and Pavlyuchenkova winning the match tiebreak 13-11. It was a match tiebreak in which both teams had match points. There were, you know, momentum shifts. You really didn't know who was going to win this match right to the very end. I thought Rublev and Pavlyuchenkova were the better team overall. They won the first set. I thought they were probably going to win it in two, but Karatsev really stepped up. Um, at the end of that second set but overall Pavlyuchenko in particular was was fantastic in that match I thought and just great vibes from that team Um, and and actually the whole Russian team it really does feel like they embraced that team element of the Olympics and being together and kind of doing everything as a little pack and making fun of each other here and there. I think Rublev found out that it was Vesnina's birthday yesterday. 
and, and tried extra hard to beat her. Yeah, and then said, "Well, actually, you know, losing losing an Olympic final on your birthday isn't so bad." And you know, it's just, just lovely to be told that by the person that's won. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just enjoyed them a lot. I enjoyed it a lot too. I I, I have such mixed feelings about the the, the match tiebreak format because it can seem so cruel and unjust sometimes it feels it can feel like such a lottery um but then it can also create great drama they're far far more likely to have high stakes matches where people save match points and go on to win and that's always fun and that's what we got yesterday and it was great and i've no idea whether those scenes on the podium support or trash my feelings about how I would feel about various medals. Rublev looked freaking miserable about his gold. <laughs> Pavlyuchenkova looked like it was the best moment of her life. Vesnina was having a whale of a time with her silver, while Karatsev looked like he wanted to murder everyone in the stadium. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> it was it was it was brilliant. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> weird Olympics. And then also nice that Ash Barty and John Piers sort of appeared out of nowhere. We're just there, <laughs> like sort of, <laughs> this is your life. <laughs> there they are. They've been sat around for three days waiting for this. <laughs> my, my absolute favourite moment <laughs> is the the gift that did the rounds of, uh, of Rublev coming up behind uh, Karatsev and giving him a kiss. And uh, and Karatsev's, the look on Karatsev's face is if to say, what am I doing here? <laughs> this child that's just beaten me is coming over and kissing me. <laughs> just go away, you. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was great, wasn't it? It was a really great moment to finish the Olympics on. Just, just on the respective feelings about medals thing um i've had some interesting correspondence today or i and we have had some interesting correspondence and there is science to back up my feelings <laughs> and i also want to point out uh, if it needs pointing out that i wasn't making any value objective value judgments about silver versus bronze i was explaining how i believe i would feel about each of the medals in that hypothetical world where i'm stood on a podium at the Olympics somewhere. Archery, 2028. Um, <laughs> and the science comes from the University of Minnesota uh, in a study that was first conducted in the 90s, but I think has been sort of followed up on and added to since then. And I'll just read one portion from it, which I think explains what I was trying to explain on yesterday's podcast just better. Um, it says, the most obvious counterfactual thought for the silver medalist might be to focus on almost winning gold. She would focus on the difference between coming in first place and any other outcome. The bronze medalist, however, might focus their counterfactual thoughts downwards towards fourth place. She would focus on almost not winning a medal at all. The categorical difference between being a medalist and not winning a medal does not exist for the comparison between first and second place. It's very good. 
Mm. Uh, I, 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 I find that very compelling. Um, and yeah, I, I can believe that. I, I, it's obviously not true with everybody. No, I, I, how they feel about it. Sure, but that I, psychology... I think in, in tennis, I would, I would feel like that. I definitely think I would feel like that in tennis. I don't. And I know there's a lot of people saying oh, that only applies in the moment, but I think there's quite a lot of evidence that it doesn't just apply in the moment. Marty Fish's Twitter feed, for example, or certainly not, not for everybody. Um, yeah, it's, the psychology of it all is fascinating. Uh, I, really interesting. I did enjoy the way several listeners just leapt to your support and wrote in with this detail. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware that I was going to need supporting after yesterday's <laughs> podcast, but here we are. It's great. Uh, um, yes, marvellous. Well, apparently other tennis has been also going on whilst the Olympics was on, um, and Kasper Ruud has been winning all of it. Um, he, in fact, he's, he's won the post-Wimbledon clay court treble of Bostad, Gestad and Kitzbühel. And he celebrated winning Kitzbühel, which I think must have been heavily rain-delayed because they ended up finishing it. I, I turned it on. <laughs> I saw a tweet from somebody saying, oh, Kasper Ruud's back out at 11pm uh, on, on the clay courts of Kitzbühel. And I turned it on and there he was just before midnight, flat on his back, celebrating winning a third title in as many weeks, 12 match wins in a row. And, I mean, there's been quite a lot of sneering, really, around the fact that he's won these sort of weakened field tournaments. Um, And and they're on clay after Wimbledon. I I find it all. I've never understood why those t- tournaments are held. Then, even though I think they're all fantastic tournaments, it just it doesn't make any sort of sense in terms of the narrative of the sport to me to be following Wimbledon when you're not leading up to a massive tournament on that surface. Um, but at the same time, you cannot take away from the actual achievement of holding it together three weeks in a row, winning all of those matches and showing exactly what you've got on that surface. And and he he was thrilled. And I think it's because of of the unusual element of just winning three tournaments in a row. I think he feels a bit indestructible for that period. And, and, and it really meant a lot to him. Um, so congrats. The the old trophy celebration was a bit weird, though. My word. That, I mean, it was like, you think I get pumped. The Kitzbühel organisers at, at near midnight, they were so pumped. And it was it was all a bit awkward. Um, but they certainly staged a good event. And, were they uh, more pumped than Casper Rude? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I mean, he. I think the thing with his pumpedness is it was... It was in the moment, flat on the back, euphoria. And then, of course, you've got to go through the whole trophy presentation thing. And he did his, he did an interview and he, he concluded the interview and he walked off. And then the interviewer invited him back because he'd got one more question for him after he'd already gone <laughs> and sat down. And the question was about the outfit that they'd handed to his girlfriend, the sort of local garb that they'd had given to his girlfriend to wear for the day, which she seemed to be enjoying wearing um, this traditional outfit. But it was all a bit awkward. This sounds horrifying. It was, really. 
<laughs> still um Gasparud was uh, was delighted generally and uh, and I mean that honestly I can't stress how enough how lovely those three tournaments are it's just it would be nice for them to be in a more sort of relevant part of the calendar uh, I think but great events has there been sneering beyond Nick Kyrgios David. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. I would say. I mean, look, Kyrgios has been the leader of it, and and he provided us with a, another high point of kind of gentle pantomime Twitter aggro with Kasparud by by sneering at it, to which Rude frankly got the better of him, really, by asking him what his favourite clay court tournament was, and then and then I mean, he yeah, he he he's just sort of deadpans these little barbs back at. Um, curious and there was a very low your mum incident oh. which got deleted yeah thankfully yeah in a low point for humor mm. yes and yeah that's when you internet. know you're beaten yeah, yeah. and i think curious knew in that and i think actually he would probably have the self-awareness to realize that he'd been beaten in that particular moment yeah um, i mean i think exactly as you said david you can you can support the argument that the placement of those tournaments in the calendar makes no sense for tennis and also support that that is a fantastic achievement for Casper and one that should not be sniffed at. No. no and actually, Both I, those I, things I'm can be true. Very interested to see whether he can back this up in some way. With I mean, look, I'm not expecting him to go and win another three tournaments in a row on hard court in America, but you would like to see strides. I think, on other surfaces now because I think he's a fantastic clay court player just in terms of his whole game set up and that's been proven now, backed up by results. But what about the others? Matt, I'm sure you were aware of this stat before it started circulating, but I I had somehow completely wiped it from my memory that Andy Murray had won three consecutive tournaments on hard courts in 2011 mm. i think tokyo shanghai and beijing uh, i i i wasn't aware of that i mean that is that no wonder he's run out of hip <laughs> i mean that's just ridiculous because if you'd asked me when murray did that i probably would have said 2016 mm. when he had that run but actually he did win three consecutive tournaments but they were spread across more weeks i think they were spread across four weeks whereas the last time someone had won three tournaments in three weeks was Andy Murray in, in twenty eleven in that Asian swing. That I think that I think he won or was one of them Tokyo, which was perhaps where they're playing the Olympics, I think. Um Yes. Yeah, it, it is an incredible feat. Winning winning an ATP title is not an easy thing to do at the best of times. To win three in three weeks back to back like that, and I think Kitzbühel was the hardest one. He he had some real tough matches some some three setters but to keep going like that to win it's an incredible achievement and yeah he just needs to he needs to do a, a bit like what Dominic Team did I mean I think he's actually more of a clay court specialist at this point than Team ever was um, but I think he's got the game to make that jump and to start replicating some of these good results on a hard court it was uh, it was Bangkok Tokyo and Shanghai for Murray in 2011. Mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, Elsewhere, another pretty impressive, not as impressive, but a pretty impressive 
set of results for Brandon Nakashima, who reached a second... Big moment for you, Brandon. Not that big a moment, but... <laughs> second career final. Oh, oh, I've got that wrong. Hold on. No, it was. It was two in a row, wasn't it? Because the yeah. previous one was in Los Cabos. That's right. To Norrie. Um, lost to Cameron Norrie. And then he reached the Atlanta final and he went down to John Isner, who I learned mid-match was the five-time champion of Atlanta and is now the six-time champion. I mean, that is a one of those multiple title stats that I just had no idea existed whatsoever. It's like how Greg Rosetsky just always used to go and win Newport, Rhode Island every year, <laughs> quietly, uh, the week after Wimbledon. <laughs> He's like a sort of 17-time champion there or something. <laughs> Has John Isner won a title outside of America? I think he's won Auckland. I think all his other titles might have been in America. Mm. Sounds plausible, Matt. Mm, does, doesn't it? Indeed. Um, well, we've got a couple more tournaments taking place this week. We mentioned Washington the other day with the uh, the men's tournament hosting uh, Rafael Nadal. Uh, the return of Rafael Nadal, who's been uh, pictured a lot, including on the street with somebody's dog. Um, in his Wimbledon had... kit. <laughs> in his Wimbledon see... kit, didn't play Wimbledon, wearing Wimbledon kit, strolling down the street, um, encountering and and being polite but uncomfortable with a dog. <laughs> it's good to have Nadal back. <laughs> it's great. It was, it was great. Uh, it sure is. Um, and also the tournament in San Jose, the WTA event, which has the first appearance since Wimbledon of Emma Raducanu, who is an IMG client. It's an IMG event. She's actually opening centre court night session play on Monday night. Well, tonight, which is quite a thing to give her to do, isn't it? And, um, and it's confirmed that if she wins, they've already announced the night session matches for the first three nights. And if she wins, I think she plays Madison Keys oh, really? on the Wednesday night. I mean, that's that's a that's a big old if, but um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's definitely mm. a lot. Yeah, well, good luck to her. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, and uh, I mean, her, her career generally will just be really interesting to follow um, after after that breakout at Wimbledon, which which was not not unexpected that she would make waves in the sport, but that that they would come that quickly and suddenly uh, at her first appearance. So um, let's see how that goes. Right. Well, that pretty much brings our Olympics tennis coverage to a close here on the tennis podcast. It has been weird. I have enjoyed it. <laughs> Particular, I mean, I've enjoyed all of our conversations about it, but I think mostly I will try to remember it for Saturday when it made me just feel a heck of a lot of things. It made me feel all the things that Olympics tennis over the years has has made me feel. I think I will remember it for those Pablo Carreño Buster quotes that he gave. Yes, was it yesterday? Days of the week, it, it's all it's all very blurry. It might have been two days ago now. <laughs> so you're, you're yesterday, Catherine. When he said, this Catherine is my time. greatest ever title. I feel like I've won the gold after winning the bronze. Um, yeah, that, I think that's what I will remember from it. I will block out Medvedev threatening to die on the court. 
<laughs> and the rest of the weirdness. Come on, you enjoyed that bit as well. I did enjoy it a bit, yeah. <laughs> um, how about you, Matt? There were a lot of memorable moments, I think, actually. You know, just starting with Naomi Osaka lighting the flame. That is a tennis moment that I think we will remember. Um, that feels like a long time ago. It does feel like a long time ago, but it happened. You're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tennis-wise, I'm going to remember it for Novak Djokovic's defeat. You know, just because mm. that was such a massive shock and story, and then as just as you said, David, all those all those matches on Saturday, and and how much bronze meant to Svitolina, to Karina Busta, and Pagossi and Stefani in the doubles. There were some there were some really epic moments on the Saturday in particular. And you know, it's it's possible, maybe not. I hope not probable, but it's entirely possible that a Golden Slam won't be achieved now in my lifetime i hope that that's quite a big time span that i'm i'm putting on it but that is how how big a feat that is the fact that novak djokovic was unable to achieve it this year that and that's yeah that's quite a thought yeah and the fact that he's got this close to it because i never thought that would be doable um i really uh, i i didn't think winning all four Grand Slams in a year would be possible. And it may still not be, um, maybe beyond it. May, this may be the defining moment in, in that quest. But, yeah, it's impressive that he got that close. But but you, you're, you're right. I mean, it's it's we're kind of used to dominance from people now. And we may we may enter a period of time where there is no dominance for, for quite a few years. Yeah, and as, as Catherine said the other day, we've had four of the most dominant tennis players in history playing in this era from Serena, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic and it's very likely now that none of them will do the Golden Slam to think that someone did it Steffi Gra- I mean the more you think about that the the pressure that comes with it the having to peak five different times in the same year and to have that peak year be an Olympic year just the things that have to come together and how great you have to be to pull that off is completely, completely remarkable. Um, I think we should do a tennis relived on that on that season. I think we sort of are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's nitty gritty we can get into. Um, mm. So I think you're right. Uh, As, uh, there was a great line on the, on the WhatsApp yesterday. Was it yesterday? Oh, God. Um... <laughs> I think it might have been yesterday. Yesterday yesterday was very long. It might still be yesterday. Anyway, um, Matt said that while we were all uh, watching the blokes line up for the men's 100 metre final um, and it was, you know, it's the post-Usain Bolt era of 100 metre running and, you know, it was a great story in the end with the um, with Lamont Jacobs, the Italian that nobody had ever heard of winning. Or well, I'm sure I, I, you know I'm being I'm being facetious. Athletics people had, but you know what I mean. It wasn't Usain Bolt? Um, Matt describes it as uh, described it as the track and field equivalent of uh, post Big Three men's tennis. Yeah, and quite fitting that, that an Italian won. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, they win everything. Good one. Um, I I do hope that in the era that does follow that we're not too sniffy and judgmental of 
people who do only win one or maybe two. Like everyone's been about women's tennis for the past 10 years. Well, I mean, a lot of the 10 years, Serena's still been winning, hasn't she? But I yeah, I, but, you know, the general narrative of, oh, you know, you can't get to know these people. They win one slam and then they disappear and don't follow it up. And yeah, Not and you, I, David, obviously. No, but I but, sort of... You know, that I kind has of, been a pervasive... I feel like... Sneer. I, the, and, and the one I don't like is the idea that if you win one, that it's incumbent on you that you back it up in order to be a proper winner. And, I mean, I, and I think... Look, I remember... Pat Rafter getting called a one slam wonder by maybe it was Martina Navratilova or someone like that. Um, <laughs> I can't remember what it was um, exactly who it was, but but you know the, those sort of things went around back then because in that era that used to happen a lot. I mean, obviously Rafter ended up winning more, um, but that, those sort of things did tend to to happen. And whilst I do like multiple winners, of, of course, a bit like the golds. The, the, that the, whilst you may not have the narratives, I, I hope that, that that can also be embraced because I think there can be some damning by comparison, uh, and it's probably likely in the years to come. But that but players shouldn't be criticised and just because they're not Novak Djokovic or Rafael Nadal or Roger Federer or Serena Williams, they are they are the unusual ones, not not mm. the rest. Yeah, and I think golf has had a bit of this in the post-Tiger Woods era. You know, in golf, there are far fewer players with lots and lots of majors and 15 for Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus with 18. Those really stand out. And I think one or two majors now, it it can be easy to just think, oh, well, what's that? We've had a guy win 15. And I think in the 100 metres yesterday, you think, oh, the winning time was 9.8. Well... You know, I've seen 9.58. I, th- I think it's it's easy to fall into that mentality. And actually, of course, that is that is grossly unfair because winning the 100 metres or winning a major title is, is an incredible achievement. So I do think we will need to be very aware of that comparison a lot of the time and, and just readjust and it will just take a little bit of time probably. I think it's in Britain we've had the, the example in British football of managers trying to follow Sir Alex Ferguson and the the difficulty it is to live up to somebody who's just won everything so many times um and yeah it'll be interesting definitely more of a difficulty if you're David Moyes I think (laughs) wasn't given enough time Catherine no yeah wasn't given enough time I would suggest Mourinho, was he given enough time? Yeah, he was definitely given enough time, as was Louis van Gaal. Mm. Um, But I would have given Moyes more time. But anyway, what do I know? (laughs) I support West Bromwich Albion. Right, well, this week we have had uh, Zeus and Rogue and Scouse and Mousel supporting us here on the Tennis Podcast. In vain. uh, (laughs) Yeah, we we didn't get anything. Did we get anything right? No. No, no, it was a weird Olympics. Yeah. Oh, my player, my player, poor old... Paolo Bedosa got carted off the court unwell within about four hours of me telling everybody she'd win the title. I hope she's all right, by the way. Um, and Billie Jean the Dog is sponsored by Billie Jean King. Uh, Chris Albert Lee is our executive producer and, it says here, executive mascot, <laughs> which is oh. marvellous. Small typo on my part there. Apologies, Chris. <laughs> Brilliant, Sorry, man. Matt. Well, he did provide those two marvellous cats. 
for us over Olympics uh, week. And over this week, we have the absolutely wonderful Spirit the Dog, a 10-year-old Shih Tzu and Bichon Frise mix submitted as our mascot by Virginia Priest in Brooklyn. And I'm looking at a picture of Did I see Spirit a picture, please? the Dog. Oh, Catherine. Uh, Get notion up. Yeah. Uh, um, it's there. It's there. I've got it up. Oh, he- oh my goodness. In a meadow. <laughs> she, Spirit out. the dog is amazing. Oh. oh. Just the coolest. So we'll definitely get a picture oh, of Spirit the so dog happy. into our newsletter and onto our social media for you all to have a look at. And thank you so much to Virginia Priest in Brooklyn for bringing spirit into our lives. And they were delighted to have spirit. Literally and metaphorically. (laughs) Yes, quite right. Uh, Right, Catherine, go and get your latest two and a half hour nap. Um, No, I'm going to do better today. Are you? Oh, good. Splendid. Although just by saying that, I've I've created pressure again and I've... (laughs) Yes, you have. God, now I know what it's like to be an, an elite athlete. <laughs> I tell you, I, I thought I'd never met anybody who could watch the Olympics quite as impressively as you until I met Matt, whose who's Olympics watching over the last week has just left me staggered. Um, it's, it's, it's left me so shattered. <laughs> <laughs> you don't seem to... Do, you, you don't miss anything. Um, hey... I, you missed the weightlifting at three AM this morning. <laughs> Two hours yeah. of it. But he's got not that even not even medals at stake. <laughs> he's got that so on catch up ready. Call to yourself come. an Olympic fan, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Marvellous. Okay, well listen, we're gonna be back with another tennis podcast in a week from now. We're gonna take a, a week a week off. Uh, and then we'll be back next Monday. Um looking back on the Washington and San Jose tournaments. Um, looking ahead to well it'll already have started won't it or it'll be just getting underway the the Toronto stroke Montreal tournaments which are always fantastic events and Catherine will be part of the team in fact presenting the team coverage for Amazon Prime Video Uh, working slightly different weird hours yes (laughs) but brilliant so she'll be on the telly um, and we'll be able to watch can't wait of uh, Montreal and Toronto. Uh, and then the whole thing's building up, isn't it? And we'll be bringing you twice weekly podcasts throughout the build up, uh, going through Cincinnati. We're looking at a couple of editions of US Open Relived, which I can't wait for. Uh, and then we'll be daily during the US Open. Oh, I'm excited. Pumped. Yeah. Bring it on. Super pumped. Right. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll speak to you next week. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.